Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here with us on New Start Sunday. Would you right now uh, grab this card that your host talked to you about earlier? We call it the connection card. And if you haven't done it already, would you put your name in a way that uh, we could connect with you on here? And as the offering comes, we're going to place these in the buckets as they come today. But if you're new around here, uh, just let me uh, assure you, this is really the only thing we're expecting you to put in uh, those buckets today. Uh, we really just want to know you were here. We want to be able uh, to connect with you if we can, and we would love to pray for you. We do do that every week. Uh, the offering really is a time for people who consider Community Christian to be a regular part of their life. Uh, it's an expression of them for their love back to God, for what He's done in their life, and it's a way for us to participate together in what God has called us to do together uh, to make a difference in our world and uh, uh, in, the, in the community right around us. So if you've been asked to receive the offering, if you have the buckets, would you stand up right now and begin uh, to receive that? While they're doing that, uh, I want to give you a quiz uh, to start off uh, this new series. And uh, the one question I want you to think about is this question. How much does the average American woman spend annually on her appearance? Now, I know I'm already in trouble with some of you. Uh, it's probably all necessary, but it, this includes things like makeup and uh, it includes uh, anti-aging cream, which I didn't know there was such a thing. It's uh, diet supplements, it's gym memberships, it's hair cuts, it's hair coloring. How much does the average American woman spend per year uh, on, on her appearance? Now, uh, this comes from a Groupon survey. Uh, is the answer $1,756? Is it $3,756? Or is it $5,756? Okay. You got your answer? All right. The real answer is B. It's $3,756, or just a little bit over $300 a month. Or another way to think about that is it's almost a quarter million dollars over the course of your lifetime. Hmm, that's a lot of money. Uh, and I don't want you to think I think there's anything wrong with that. I think presenting yourself the best you can, that, that's a good thing. Uh, but to, So you don't think I'm sexist? Let's think about men for a second. Because men also spend on their appearance in our culture. How much do you think men spend annually on uh, uh, their appearance? Well, men spend about $50 less per month, or the way you think about it uh, is a little less than uh, 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 $3,600 a year, uh, and it's about $175,000 over the course of a lifetime. Now, again, I'm not trying to make the point that there's anything wrong with that, uh, uh, I was just really surprised by that. Uh, we're all trying to look our best. One of the things that did surprise me in this survey is how we spend our money different. If you had to guess, there's one part of a woman's body that she spends almost all the money on. What part of a woman's body do you think she spends almost all of her money on? It's her face. Uh, uh, men, however, that's not where we spend it. We spend it mostly on diet supplements and, and gym membership which both of those uh, really surprised me. I'm probably just clueless, but with the men, the reason is it's because there's been no money spent on this, no gymming, you know, this is all just me. And you're thinking, yeah, you get what you pay for. Well, uh, anyway, uh, that's going to make sense to you, I think, in just a minute, because I want to talk to you about this in this new series we're starting, New Year, New You. In fact, what I want to do, if you didn't know, is we're studying in this series uh, the most famous teaching of Jesus. It's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, and if you wonder why, it's because 
Uh, the Bible tells us Jesus had so many people following him that he goes up to a hillside and he sits down so the people can gather around him, all around him, and see him, and uh, also where they can hear him, and he teaches this. And it's become widely known over the last 2,000 years as one of the most incredible teachings uh, by anybody, whether you believe Jesus is the Son of God or not. And so we're studying this, and today, uh, just not to overwhelm you if you're not a Bible person, we're going to look at just one sentence that Jesus has to say that has to do with this thing of our appearance, and not the kind of thing where we spend on how we present ourselves to others to present ourselves the best, but I think even all of us would admit there comes a point where you can cross a line, and you're not just trying to present yourself the best, but you're trying to make yourself something that you're not, to look like something you're not, to present yourself as something you're not, and when you do that, you do damage to yourself, and you do damage to the people that are all around you, and Jesus addresses that. Now, I want to read you this one sentence he makes. It's kind of a warning, and we have it in a little letter that's written by an eyewitness of this, a guy named Matthew. Uh, isn't that interesting? We have an actual letter from an eyewitness of Jesus that records what he said, and here's what he heard Jesus say. Jesus said, Be careful not to perform your good deeds before men to be seen by them. If you do, you have, will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, I think the way that Jesus might address that if he were in our world is he would start by talking to us about something that's become known in our culture as approval addiction. It's this living your life as if the whole world is your audience and they, they need to applaud you to get the approval of other people on your life. It's the dis disease that we have to please everyone in our world. Now, in their culture, when Jesus addressed this with them, they were a very religious culture. In fact, everything was about religion. Their government was religious, and so we have cultures still like that today, but we aren't one of those. So in a religious culture, he addressed to them things like when you give money to the temple, because people would have thought you were more righteous if you gave more money, or when you pray, or when you do those kind of religious acts, don't do those in a way that people will see you uh, to try to impress them. In our day, that's not where we live. We would talk about, hey, making good grades so other people would be impressed with you, or having a nice house so people are impressed with you, or uh, making sure your body is sexually attractive so people will desire you and think you're beautiful and those kind of things. Uh, Jesus is addressing the fact that when you do that, so that other people will uh, approve you, at some point, you begin to do damage to yourself and to the people around you. There's a danger in this, and when you're in the middle of it, you really can't see it. So today, I want to talk to you about uh, the danger of, uh, of approval addiction and what it is and uh, what the alternative to that is in our culture. I want to start by looking at the consequences of what it is so that if you, you struggle with approval addiction, you, you can look for these consequences in your life. There's an author named Mitch Prinstein who has written a book called Popular, and he says uh, this. He says, you know, when we were in high school, there were chemical changes taking place in our body, and in the middle of those chemical changes in that environment, one of the things that became uber important to us, and some of you are right in the middle of this, is that we have a group that approved of us, that the approval of the group, of our peers, was of utmost importance. And almost all of us can admit uh, we remember what that's like. Some of you are right in the middle of it. What he says in this book is our culture has gotten stuck in that place, that, that chemical addiction to wanting to be approved by the group, by the group, has become a part of what we are. And of course, if you live long enough, you, you can realize that there comes a point where 
having approval and, and being, having a good life aren't the same. That often the most popular people, like the head cheerleader or the uh, captain of the football team or whatever it is, they're often also the people that they don't really feel uh, that great about their life. That being popular doesn't necessarily live, lead to having a great life. And in this book, he distinguishes between two kinds of popularity. The first one he talks about is status. And status is how I use things that are outside of me to impress other people. You know, like the way I look and what I do. And am I, am I beautiful? Am I powerful? Am, uh, is everybody know me? Am I famous? Uh, that, that kind of desire for those kind of things, it starts in high school. And he uses an example of a girl named Alexandra Court. Uh, he says, she's tall, she's attractive, she's impeccably dressed, she's very sure of herself. She's the queen of the inner circle of everything at her school. And every student at the school, when they're surveyed of who is the most popular student at their school, they all say, Alexandra Court. When they're also asked, who is the most disliked person at their school, you know who they say? Alexandra Court. Because... She also is gossipy and mean and selfish and exclusive. She's not the kind of person that's very likable. And it turns out that there's a different kind of popularity than just having status. And the word that he, uh, Princeton uses is that word, likability. And describe it, it's, it's defined, he defines it as being other-centered. See, status seekers tend to focus on themselves, uh, likable people, they tend to be focused on you. Status people talk about themselves. They talk about what they're doing. They talk about what they've accomplished. They want you to know about them. And when you're with them, you, you feel like you are less than and that your life isn't really all that important. Other-centered people, they primarily want to know about you. They want to know what's going on in your world. And when you're with them, you feel like there's something in them that's, that calls out the best in you for you to be the best. And it feels like that your life really, really matters. It struck me in reading through uh, the way Princeton describes this label he gives as likable that he describes it as being trustworthy and to genuinely care for other people, to will the good of the other person, that Jesus wouldn't use the word likable. The word Jesus would use is the word righteous. That Jesus would have described it as that's what righteous means. Now, again, righteous in our world is kind of a pious world. It's a world we're not even really sure we want to apply to us. It's a pious kind of thing, but for Princeton, it really does fit what Jesus would have called this word of a caring, loving person focused on others. Now, the problem is, if you suffer from approval addiction, is no matter how much approval you get from other people, it's never enough. People who've studied this, they talk about this, and I, I love this phrase, they call it ex excessive reassurance seeking, that people who suffer from approval addiction, they have a need for excessive reassurance seeking. The way it works out is they're always checking in. They're always talking to you about, hey, did you like that? Did you, did you see that? Did you see what I'm doing? How am I doing? Do you, do you like how that feels? Did, did I do a good job? Are, are you happy with that? Is there anything I can do? And it feels like in the moment that maybe they're even interested in, in how you feel, but over time you begin to realize it's just a manipulative kind of thing they're doing, so you'll tell them, how good they did. By the way, is this talk going well? Do you like me? How's it going? See, this thing of approval addiction, it's, it's everywhere. Now, 
The alternative approval to diction is that I live for an audience of one. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a philosopher of a previous generation, said that it comes from living your life as if God is the only audience for your life. And what this recognizes is that we all seek approval. In fact, seeking approval is a human need. It, it's not whether I will seek approval, it's it's, it's a part of what I made. When you can see it in a little baby. When, when a little baby is noticed, when they're looked at, when they're, when they're smiled at, when they sense that you approve of them, they light up. There's joy that they experience, and we see that as being a good thing for them. See, the question for human beings is not, will I seek approval? It's whose approval will I seek? I have this unlimited need to be approved, and the good news is, God has an unlimited supply of approval, but only God does. So Jesus says to me, you can do life in the kingdom of God. You can live in the power and presence of God where you can know full approval. You can find your security in knowing that God is for you, that he is with you, that you can find your identity in the image God has for you. I can find my help in the strength and power of God. I can live for God's approval, not for human approval. In fact, there is a thing we need to know. You can't do both. You cannot live for both human approval and God's approval. You must choose. A follower of Jesus named Paul, who eventually starts churches all over the Mediterranean area and writes more of the New Testament than any other person, he's probably the guy most responsible for you and I knowing anything about Jesus. At one point, he starts a church in a place called Corinth, and the church is really messed up. In fact, it doesn't go very well, and he's constantly trying to get it on track, and he has to say very, very difficult things to them, and they don't like him very much. And at one point, he writes to them and says, I, carry, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human. Now, I want to propose to you that there's a very important spiritual kind of line in there. There's a quote in there that is really important for those of us who struggle with approval addiction. Here, here's the quote. I don't care. In fact, it's so important, I want you to say it out loud with me. Let's say it together. I don't care. And if, if you didn't say it out loud, I, I don't care. So this week, when, when you're around somebody and you can tell by the way they look at you that they don't approve of your clothes, you just say, I don't care. When there's somebody in your house and they're like home decorating experts and you can tell they don't approve of your decor, I don't care. When you're with the cool kids and they don't really like your music, you go, I don't care. When a law enforcement officer tells you he doesn't like how fast you drive, you go, I don't, okay, maybe that's not one. Uh, but anyway, I want to be clear with you. This idea of I don't care about your approval is, is important, but what I'm not saying is I don't care doesn't mean I don't care about you. That's not what it means. That's what we often mean, but it doesn't mean I don't care about you. It means I'm living for the approval of one, and you are not that one that approval I'm seeking. See, God did not make us to receive universal approval. For many, many, many years, I would say most of my life, I have lived as an approval addict. I have wanted people to approve of me, to tell me that I'm good, to tell me that I'm smart, to tell me that I am what they're looking for. And when I became a pastor, I thought that if I were a good pastor, if I could if I could present great messages, if I could treat people the right way, if I could bring great services to people, that everybody would love me. That being a good pastor meant that everybody would love you. 
But of course, I found out everybody doesn't love me. And with the help of a really, really good friend and a lot of hard work, he helped me realize everybody doesn't love anybody. Everybody didn't love Jesus, and, and you're never going to have everybody love you. But with a lot of help, he, he helped me discover, and here's what I've come to know, that when I live in the kingdom of God, here's what I know. Jesus likes me. Jesus not only loves me, Jesus, he delights in me. When I live in his power and his presence, I can live in that kingdom every moment for the approval of the one that really matters. And he is nuts about me. Jesus talks again about the consequences of of not living in that, of living for the approval of other people. And now again, in Jesus' day, it was about religious things, about giving and praying and fasting and those kind of things. But here's what he says about that kind of thing. He says, if you do that, doing it to impress others, whatever, whatever you do to approve others, whether it's grades or whatever, if you do that to impress others, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk a lot about this idea of rewards. And Jesus talks a lot about, it, about God's rewards and that if you do it to be seen by other people, uh, you won't receive a reward. But if you do it and God sees it, you receive a reward. And a lot of people have looked at that and they think, I don't really get that. Is, it a, is God bribing us? Is, are we supposed to live for rewards? It's, very thoughtful people have been very confused about it. So let me talk to you. We're going to talk about this a lot more over the next few weeks about this reward deal. C.S. Lewis, who's a great thinker of the previous generation, uh, wrote about this in ways that I think are very helpful. And he said there are really two kinds of rewards in life. There's extrinsic rewards and then there's intrinsic rewards. And I know those aren't words we really use every day. But an extrinsic reward, uh, he would say, is a reward that is it's like something outside of the thing you're doing, outside of the relationship you're involved in. It's, a, it's like a bribe. It's like a prize. You're doing something, but it's not for the thing you're doing. It's the prize you get at the end of it. That's extrinsic, and it's not good for us. An intrinsic reward is the kind of reward that comes from the activity itself. It, it's, it's endemic to the the, uh, the uh, thing you are doing. So, for example, if you marry somebody so that you can have access to their money, they're rich and you want to have access to their money, you receive an extrinsic reward. You're going for an extrinsic reward, not for the relationship, but for the reward. That's a bad thing and you shouldn't do it. If, if you marry somebody because you love them and you're devoted to them, you receive an intrinsic reward. And the intrinsic reward is is that you give yourself for the good of another person and you become a loving person. You experience what it's like to be a loving person. It's a reward to itself, and that's a good thing. Uh, another example is if, if, if you seek to good, good, get good grades so that your parents won't bug you or they'll be impressed with you or other people will think you're really smart, that's an extrinsic reward, and it's bad, and you, you shouldn't do it that way. However, if you get good grades because you love learning and you love the journey of what you're learning and the discovery of things, then learning those things is a reward in and of itself. That's intrinsic, and you should do it. If you buy a a new truck so that other people will know that you have the money and the capability to buy something of such power and beauty, that's an extrinsic reward when they notice it, and you shouldn't do that. But if you buy that same truck because it has power and beauty and you want to give it to your pastor who you love, that, okay, that's a joke, but you get where I'm going with this kind of thing. You should know that when Jesus talks about rewards, he's primarily talking about intrinsic kind of rewards. 
It, it, he's talking about the kind of rewards that come from being in the kingdom of God, about becoming the person. They come from loving God and living in his kingdom. They're really mostly about the person that you become by doing good things. And often these rewards are described by writers in the scripture in physical kind of ways, and people get confused about it. But what they're doing is they're trying to describe something in ways that we can understand. So you might hear about rewards like there's going to be music in heaven. And of course, the idea is not that we're going to sing forever in heaven or we're going to have to goofy sit around on, and play harps on clouds. That's not the idea at all. It's the idea that music often expresses something. There's going to be an expression there of joy there that is often too deep for words. Or the Bible will talk about that <coughs> we receive jewels in our crown from God and we take those crowns and we lay them at the feet of Jesus. And the idea is not when we get to heaven that we're all going to have these goofy little metal hats that we'll throw down at God's feet. The idea is that we will become the kind of people that are so filled with the goodness of God and humility that we're just overwhelmed with the goodness of Him. C.S. Lewis uh, writes about this and he says, There's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. So I want you for a few minutes, and over the next few weeks we will as well, I want us to think about the rewards Jesus is talking about like grown-ups. Jesus is not saying that if you do good things and someone sees them, that what happens is God says, oh no, they did something good and I was going to reward them, but somebody saw them, so I have to take that jewel back away from them. That's not it at all. The reward Jesus is talking about is he says, when you do a good thing, there's a reward in the good thing. But if you did the good thing so to be seen by somebody, so to impress somebody with what you did, then when they see you and they are impressed with you, that's all the reward you were getting. That's what you wanted. That's what you got. But if you do the good thing, because it's a good thing, and you do it for the good of the thing, then you begin to live not for the approval of others, and you experience a peace that comes from knowing that you live in the approval of God. You experience the knowledge of knowing that God himself sees what you have done and rewards you by becoming a good person with a good life. Though no one else may know or see, the thing itself produces in you a different kind of life. You become a new you. Approval addiction becomes a thing that makes me tied to what other people say about me. So how do I free myself from approval addiction? Well, you might think about it like this. All of us have been created by God with two great needs. The need to be approved and the need to be known. And we all experience them on, on the continuum. I can be experiencing fully this or I'm not approved at all. I can be known fully, or I can be totally unknown. And you might think about this as a way of really looking at uh, like a two-by-two two matrix of your life. In, in our world, so much of our world, we, people live in, in this quadrant where they receive approval. People like their status. They like what they do. They, they approve of them. We're nice to each other, and we feel approved 
but people don't really know the real me. And this is an illusion. I live in an illusion. This is what Jesus would eventually call hypocrisy. I'm approved by people, but not because they know me. They don't know me. Others in our world, they don't get approval, and they're not really known. They live uh, down in this area in isolation. It's amazing in our world where there's so much opportunity for us to interact with social media, for us to make ourselves known to people that so many of us now live. This is an epidemic in our world of people in isolation. For others in our world, they live on the other side of this, and they are fully known. People know them fully. They know exactly who they are, but they don't receive ex approval for their life at all, and they live in rejection. That's all they experience in their life, that their life is rejected. God made us. You were made to know approval and to be fully known. In this area is where you experience love. Interesting thing is that when the Bible describes the Garden of Eden, uh, the story of the Garden of Eden, it, it talks about Adam and Eve being naked, fully known, and yet they were not ashamed. They experienced this quadrant. That's what we were made for. Now, one of the reasons many of you know how much I love 12-step programs is that 12-step programs are trying to help pull people who've experienced things in their life in, into this area. For many of us who have had addictive kind of areas, we live with an illusion where we fool people, but there's something else going on, or we live in isolation so nobody knows us and they don't approve, or we experience rejection. And when you first go to your first 12-step meeting, you're, you're afraid, and, and the first thing you say is, hi, I'm Ed, and you you, you fear rejection. You fear that now that everybody knows, hi, I'm Ed, and I'm an alcoholic, that when they hear that, you'll be rejected. But because of the nature of the thing, everybody then says back to you, hi, Ed. It's like everybody says, and we see you. We know you. And this is a place where you are known, and you can be approved, where you can be fully known, and you can be accepted. This it's the kingdom of God, where we can be fully known by people, and we can be fully loved by people. Jesus gives two great practices to human beings, to his disciples, to help them to live in that quadrant. One is that we would practice this practice of secrecy. Actually, the whole first part of the next few weeks we're going to talk about is this deal of secrecy. When you do things, when you give, do it in secret. When you pray, do it in secret. The things that you do, you don't do for the approval of others. And, and I just want to make clear, Jesus is not giving new laws. He's not saying that if somebody sees it, it's all been ruined. He's saying that if you struggle for approval addiction, you wind up doing it to be seen. And at first, he's just saying to us, so do it where nobody knows. Do a good thing and let nobody know. And of course, at first, when you hear that, you think, if I do a good thing and nobody knows, it just sounds terrible. How, how will they approve of me? How will they know that I'm good? How will they know that I have a good life? But Jesus says, your father who sees what you have done in secret just between you and him, he will reward you openly. This is really deep, and we'll, we'll talk about it more in the future, but he challenged us to live in secret. So that's the challenge for New Start Sunday. Do something good for somebody and don't let anybody know. Decide to do something good for somebody, but don't let anybody know. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your social media, not anybody. If you want really good credit, do something for somebody you don't like and don't let anybody know. 
Write a note anonymously. Encourage somebody. Buy a gift card and leave it on somebody's desk. Get something. Do a favor for somebody without them knowing who did it. Do something good. Don't let anybody know. Run a little experiment with Jesus this week just to see if he knew what he was talking about. Do something good just between you and him and see if you don't begin to experience a freedom and joy that comes from knowing I did something good and my father who saw what I did in secret will reward you. You become a person who doesn't have to live for the approval of others. The second practice Jesus gives is that we would live in community. That not only would I live and do good things in secret and get approval by God, but I would live where I could be known. This is why our church exists. We have groups all over our church. You, you need to get in a little group where you can experience this kind of love. In fact, the whole reason we do groups is this. Often in churches, and even in our church, there are people that show up every week and really nobody knows them. They're more like permanent visitors. They, they haven't moved out of these rows where it's somebody up front they don't really know, talking to them who I don't really know. They're not fully known, and so they don't feel fully accepted. Tonight, we're going to have an event called Group Link. And if that was you that I was just talking to, or you're new, and you want to move to a place where you can be known and and you can receive love while you're known, I encourage you, come to Group Link tonight. People will be coming, and we'll be forming up little groups. I'm going to be at Group Link tonight, and I would love to meet you. I'd love to hear your story. I'd, I'd love to be a part of that process. It's tonight at 7 o'clock at the Sharpsburg campus. You don't have to sign up. Just show up tonight and be a part of that. Do something good without knowing, letting anybody know, and move into co- in community where you can experience this. And you can begin to experience a new you in this new year. Will you stand? Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you for this good new year. And I pray that you would help us to begin to live knowing that you approve of us and live for your approval alone. Thank you for Jesus, for his love for us. In his name I pray, amen.